Okay, hello and welcome everyone to our 18th episode of A Girl Like Me Live, which is the Well Project's um, live streaming series, advancing health and wellness discussions and education among women living with and vulnerable to HIV. Every two weeks, I, CRCC Coven, will sit down with different co-hosts to chat about key topics in our community. In today's episode, I'm so excited and so honored to sit and talking with attorney Medisa, excuse me, Mandisa Moore O'Neill out of Louisiana. And we're speaking HIV and criminalization among women living with HIV. This is a very important conversation to be had, especially at this time, Black Maternal Health Week. And I'm so excited to be here. Yeah. Um, Oh, come on. Go ahead. Introduce yourself so we can jump in. <laughs> um, hello, I'm Mandisa Moroneal. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I'm based in New Orleans. Um, I'm a six-generation New Orleanian, which is always important to say because like such a tenet of the construct of Blackness in, in this country is displacement and not having a home and not having roots. I'm always very proud and very honored to say like, in spite of that, there are people who make roots and to have lived on this land for as long as we have is always just an honor. And it's always an honor like, to also do this work in my home and in, and in a place that, you know, was also my ancestral home. Um, and so I'm just stoked to be in this conversation. Um, as was mentioned, I'm a Black feminist attorney, which to me means that how I lawyer is informed by my Black feminist principles. Um, you know, for me, a Black feminism is a legal strategy as much as it is a political practice and an organizing strategy. It's not just something that you see on a t-shirt. It's actually a means of seeing people. It's a lens. It's a way that actually opens up as opposed to um, restricting. So um, I'm excited to be here. Um, I'm a member of a really amazing state coalition that I wanna shout out um, LCCH, which is Louisiana Coalition on Criminalization and Health. We're trying to do our part to address criminalization as it pertains to HIV and other um, health conditions in Louisiana. And so I'm just excited that I'm a part of this amazing coalition. Oh, yay. Black <laughs> feminist lawyer doing Black Maternal Health Week. It feels so good to be yeah. seen and to be able to have this conversation. So to just jump straight in, criminalization and women living with HIV. So I can tell you from someone that is not a lawyer, just in my personal experience, what criminalization has felt like. Criminalization from the onset of diagnosis was, hey, if you don't tell someone you're living with HIV and you sleep with them, then it's up to like 10 years in jail and a felony. So, of course, they had me just disclosing to everybody because I didn't want to go to jail. And, you know, how many unsafe situations I could have been in because I was felt like I was being forced to disclose or, you know, when it came to the breastfeeding stuff. If you breastfeed your child, then there's the potential that the propensity that DHS will be 
called on you. So where I have not had to have any interactions with these entities now that is coming up because of a choice that I have decided to make with my body and my children. So as an attorney, do you come across any, like what does criminalization in HIV look like from your lens? Um, thank you for sharing that, first of all. So my experience, and I want to say like I am 100% an attorney and long before I was an attorney, I was an organ an organizer and an activist doing uh, mostly reproductive justice and anti-violence work in um, in the New Orleans area. And in many ways, like that really grounded why I became a lawyer and the type of lawyer that I am. And it also informs like the things that I say. So of course I will be speaking as a lawyer, but also as an organizer, you know, and somebody who is um, who's invested in, in liberation. And so, yes, like I've definitely seen all of that. And for me, HIV is one of the ways that I see Black women and Black people who give birth and who parent are criminalized. And as you were talking about like the experience of disclosing and, you know, like, um, like in the potential of, of being in like violent, potentially violent situations, I was thinking that's the point. It, like that's the point of criminalization. It's to control you, it's to restrict you, it's to enact violence because you aren't supposed to do anything outside of what empire, of what the system tells you to do. And if you think that you get to have sexual partners and be free, no, no, no. Like I will make sure like, that there's some rule, some policy in place, some law in place that restricts what you're able to do. Oh, you now have a baby? Well, I have other rules in place to restrict you. And so, you know, in Louisiana, I've seen, like, it was one situation where maybe the intentional exposure statute, which is antiquated and shouldn't even exist, maybe that's not what a person is initially arrested for. But after some investigation, that charge is then added, right? So for example, you know, in a situation like where maybe there's a battery charge, then suddenly after two weeks, this HIV intentional exposure statute is then added. So it's very clear that it's not really about safety. It's about punishing you for doing something. It's about public. So in this situation, uh, the person was actually in self-defense of an intimate partner violence situation. Hey, baby. And so it was a part of punishing her for defending herself and her children from her abusive ex. And again, even though he was the one who attacked her, now that this charge is added, now she's the predator, right? Because in this paradigm, it's only two people, right? Good, bad. It's only two types of people, predators, perpetrators, and victims. It's, if people are either um, undeserving of our support, 
our compassion, our sympathy, because they somehow fall out of alignment or they're deserving. So in that dichotomy, there was no way to be human and gray and nuanced and complex. Now she's the person who is the uh, perpetrator, so to speak, even though the fact that she um, was experiencing intimate partner violence is, is now not a part of the question because of her HIV status and the way that it, you know, is used against her. So like, that's just an example, but it's indicative of what I know is not just happening here. And also it's indicative of how um, unsatisfactory our law is at addressing the justice that we actually need. You know, at most, that was able to be dropped, that charge, which was good. She wasn't in jail. You know, she's not incarcerated. She didn't have a pending charge. Those are positive things. And that's so not the full story of what was needed to make her whole. So to me, it, it's also an opportunity to point out, okay, at, at, at best, at most, this is what the law can do. And let's be clear, we can't put all of our eggs in this basket because at the end of the day, this was happening because of like the context of gentrification post-Katrina and housing. Part of why she was with them for the time is because housing was really scarce and uh, certain choices were made based on crappy options. And so to me, taking all of that into, into consideration, that's what like he exploited the fact that she was housing vulnerable. So to me, justice is taking into account displacement, you know, taking into account lack of jobs that treat like a human, number one, and pay a living, thriving wages. So to me, it's a chance just to reflect on things that we actually need to keep us safe. Absolutely. As you were speaking, I think of something my therapist said to me one time, and she explained like my HIV diagnosis and other traumas that I was experiencing, like HIV being the tip of the iceberg. That's yeah. what you can see and everyone else can see. But there were so many other structural things that led me to an HIV diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. as I talked to more and more people within the community and outside of the community, you know, being a child of people who were using drugs back in the 80s, mm -hmm. you know, and living in poverty and being that child of an immigrant and all of these, you know, different things, which should be addressed outside of HIV, but it's like not until mm -hmm. HIV becomes a factor and then you're shamed because of that mm -hmm. diagnosis yeah. and you're criminalized because of that diagnosis in some instances. And it's very unfortunate because these are vulnerable populations we are mm -hmm. talking about. And when you start talking about Black women, we are often left out and, you know, our needs, concerns, wants, desires are often overlooked. And so to be that child, you know, and to mm -hmm. make it out of that, now to be an adult and to try to maneuver through my own family and everything, you're, there are still hurdles and obstacles that I'm not even receiving, you know, from the people I thought I would receive it from, which 
is, you know, just the community. Those my neighbors or people I work with or something. Now it's coming from things that are scary, like my <laughs> providers and the law. And it's so disheartening. Um, <laughs> And, you know, the stigma of HIV just, it enhances every piece of this. And it just feels really good to know that there are lawyers, attorneys, providers that I feel like are on our side. Because at some point you feel like you don't have anybody on your side. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much for being engaged in this conversation today. Thank you. Um, Oh, this, this is great. So it could always be more of us, though. It can always be more of us. Thank you for saying that. And I, I I received the thank you. And for me, I'm just doing like my life's work, which is like, you know, like I just think to um, Harriet Tubman and like she was a freedom fighter. She was a general. She was a leader. But before she was any of those things, she was a dreamer. Because, like, you had to dream that freedom was possible in order to go towards it and to, like, actualize it. And so I appreciate that. And and it, sh- it needs to be more of us. You know, it needs to be more, like, it shouldn't be a, a unique thing. Like, it should be so many attorneys out here, so many people who are in the social work field that we have worked ourselves out of a job. And for me, I just want to be clear, that's my goal. Lawyering for me is a tool. It's not the end all be all and it will never, it, it, it's never the end game. The end game is freedom. The end game is liberation. And this again, at its best is a tool that can keep you out of jail, hopefully, as you actualize freedom. I'm not saying, I'm not saying that you can't be free in, in, in cages, you know what I mean? But just like acknowledging that like my job is to just support and like, you know, things along the way that may be an extra hindrance. But I just want to say, I wish it was more of us. Not to invisibilize those of us who are out there, you know, who oftentimes to me, aren't doing the sexy work, like you'll never see, um, you know, like, like folks know, I guess, you know, Benjamin Crump or like folks who uh, represent families um, of those who are non-incarcerated, who have have been murdered by the cops. And not to take away from that, I will say like for every one attorney who you see that, you know, is on TV and has, has visibility, is so many other of us doing like the unsexy work that's never going to be televised. At the end of the day, as you were saying about Black women in particular, that's not something that, or like working class women, um, undocumented women, like that's not the kind of stuff that's going to make the news. And it's people who are involved in that. So I just want to acknowledge, I, I do wish it was more of us. And also like for those of us who are out there, it's, you know, it's not very visible a lot of the time. And that's why conversations like 
these are so important. I can just imagine, um, I've been positive now for almost 14 years. And there were points, especially at the beginning of my diagnosis, living down south, young black girl. I didn't feel like there were other people that I could look to, like, especially not anybody on a provider type level of mm -hmm. any, no professional, you know, um, and no one that would listen to my desires, my wants, my anything I had. And I, I fell quickly into that, you know, that internal stigma that we feel because of how I was being treated by those on the outside of me beginning at their diagnosis marker like they were so hopeless at, when I got diagnosed so thank you I can only imagine you know the person that is newly diagnosed or the person that is struggling in any facet of their life right now just having seeing this conversation I could imagine how beneficial that could be for that individual and we talk often about providers need to hear this stuff from other providers they sure do Lawyers need to hear this stuff from they other sure lawyers. We, sure we just talked about that this morning. So, you know, even though there may be a small, um, maybe sometimes invisible set of these people, I think they just continuing to share the work in your networks. And hopefully, you know, it'll be a snowball effect. And you will work yourself out of a job. I'm, I'm not hoping it for you, but, you know. Oh, I want to be out of a job. Let me be very clear. <laughs> I want to be out of a job and like that. And I also want to be clear, I'm an abolitionist. So like yeah. the like paradigm of being an abolitionist, particularly in this, you know, summer 2020 moment where I'm upset that abolition somehow became a conversation solely about defund the police, which to me is watering down, excuse me, so much work, so many layers of work into this like one phrase that was palatable to people who, who are continuously funding law enforcement, let's be clear. So the stuff like that y'all were talking about, you wasn't even doing, but that's a whole nother conversation. But like as an abolitionist, I am very, very clear that work, like that I must work as if abolition is possible next week, even though I understand it may not be achieved in my lifetime. So part of what I understand it means being abolitionist is that like I'm working as if there's not like there's one day in which I won't have to lawyer, even if that won't be actualized in my lifetime. It's still the goal. You know, like I think of um, again, you know, like I'm always quoting black women because I am brilliant and that brilliance comes from the black women who have written things for us and have shared their voices with us and that I've been able to soak in their brilliance. I think of Zora Neale Hurston, um, you know, an amazing anthropologist from the Deep South. And, and my favorite quote by her is when she said, um, jump at the sun. She said, mama always told us, jump at the sun. Oh, you may not make it, but at least you'll get off the ground. And that just grounds my abolitionist dreams. Even if it's something that can't be achieved in my lifetime, I will jump as if I can do that shit next week. See, I said I wouldn't curse and I'm sorry. But so I'm sorry, but 20 minutes in, I'm proud of myself. But um, what you said about your journey 
you know, and somebody who is, is, is living with HIV, it struck something in me, CC, because something, something like that I experience is when we often talk about criminalization, how I was introduced to the conversation is it was all about law enforcement, right? And, you know, and the government. And that's true. Like they are the, the agents, the ones who arrest you and actually have the power to keep you in cages. But something that I've had to learn is to really, really address criminalization. I have to abolish the cop inside of me. And that's not to say that I am a law enforcement officer, but it is to say I was raised in the U.S., I was raised in a society that polices everything, that is built on policing Blackness. So I would be silly. It is like it is built on policing Black women's wounds. So it would be silly of me to think that somehow, because I'm liberated, I don't have to do that work. And so I think of that in terms of when you talk about service providers and the ways that service providers, lawyers, um, doctors, folks in the medical profession, social workers have also internalized these ideas about criminalization. And then it plays out when someone comes, like you said, newly diagnosed at their desk or comes for services. So once I understood that criminalization isn't just something that, you know, cops do or the government does, but it's something that I also have a role in and that I actually have the power to check my assumptions, you know, like just thinking of what happens in an ER when like a black infant comes in with the mark and oftentimes an assumption gets made about what happened to that baby in ways that don't always happen with like someone white or somebody who's um, owning class. You know what I mean? Just thinking about how there are so many instances of criminalization that no, it wasn't somebody was arrested in a warrant. A social worker called the cops on that person. You know what I mean? A doctor called, like, had a really wild interpretation of what being a, a mandatory reporter is and decided that this spot meant this child was being abused as opposed to that child is active and fell. So once I understood that, like, criminalization is something like, that we all can participate in and can actually stop. It also shifted what accountability meant. Because that's something like that I see, especially when a conversation about HIV and Black women and criminalization is the role that other state agencies such as Child Protective Services play. Like I know the Well Project has a lot um, of, like of resources and information on this topic as do other groups, but that to me is a big area. Thinking of immigration, thinking of like, how many ice raids happen at home? Home is a very gender space that society says is the women's space. Therefore, immigration is a gender justice issue. <laughs> like, There's no way I could follow up with, I mean, we could all just sit here and listen to you <laughs> all day. Yes, tell me more about this gender space now. This well, I'm crazy. thinking of exactly like of what, I'm trying to keep up with the comments, um, you know, of what Catherine said about most women who live with HIV 
are reported to CPS by their healthcare and and social service providers. Something like that, I, like in a conversation about HIV criminalization, a conversation about any criminalization, that's a gendered conversation because reproductive violence or this uh, violence based on like on controlling how you reproduce, when you reproduce, who it's for and, and the purpose, that is inherently one that requires criminalization to, to happen. You know, like to me, like when I think of criminalization, that's a form of control. I, I'm telling you what you get to do with your body. I get to, I tell you what's public space. No, no, no. I get to walk down the street. You do not. You walk down the street is assume you're a sex worker and you're treated as such. Out on the street, I'm, you know, I, I just get to be. Like, that's criminalization, this idea like that. You um, have to stay in line. And when you don't, you're punished. But when you do, you're still punished. So that's the, that's the gag. Whoa, major gig. So you're dealing with those two, you know, things. And then the internalized stigma that the person is already feeling. So all of these things compounded together are the recipe for a very, very bad situation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, thinking of CPS and how that would fall back on me, you know, is the mom of these two children. And I've never had any run-ins except for that one time when I got locked up when I was like 19, but I only stayed there for a few hours because I didn't have car insurance. Okay. So that was a poverty thing. Ended up in jail on my way way to class at the University of Georgia and my car insurance lapsed. And that ended up, I missed that Friday class and everything, but it's okay. It's It's cool. We got it back. But no other run ends with law enforcement or anybody else and now my parenting which you know it's hard sometimes to even have full confidence in it because everybody's already looking at you under this microscope you know are you doing the right thing why would you even want to have kids if you're living with hiv why would you want to how did you get pregnant like that question how did you get pregnant um those types of things and now at such a very vulnerable time to even have anything about CPS. Like you, I know I was raised, you don't talk to them people. You don't talk to the social workers. Don't tell them your business because that is the fear is that, you know, they're going to become way too involved in it. Their involvement could potentially end with their child no longer being with the parent, which is scary. A lot of us are just, you know, getting it how we live we we doing it and these kids are fine and well loved but it just may look different you know to someone else on the outside and then to compound that with hiv it's like just because i had unprotected my my story i had unprotected sex that time i did eggs for hiv this is something an std sti that i came across you know other people were not criminalized for things like herpes or chlamydia things like that but because it is hiv now you have so much rain over my life i felt like at one point you know i couldn't do certain careers because of my HIV status. I couldn't, you know, be in certain spaces because of that. And to see that it is backed up in so many different places by 
law and policy is so disheartening. Make me not want to talk to nobody, you know, like really who can I trust? I can't go into my provider's office and tell them exactly what's going on at home because this may open me up to some scrutiny that I'm not quite prepared for. So, um, this is such a heavy but much needed conversation. We've been missing a lot of comments. Um, I wanted to go back. Olivia uh, asked you to unpack something a while oh, ago. Oh, I missed that. What she said? Oh, can you talk a bit more about abolition for folks who may be newer to the term? Why, yes, I can. It's my one of my favorite conversations. Um, so, yeah. Like, Everything I say, um, I'm deeply influenced by uh, Black feminism, by Indigenous feminism. Um, my first introduction to abolition was when I was 20 years old, talking about um, an adequate response to sexual violence and me being baby Mandisa, much like just as fiery now as I was then. I was like, oh, well, men should be castrated. Like that is the proper response to rape, to sexual violence. And having like a fellow um, black feminist like really challenge me <laughs> on this of like um, why it, it, it feels good to have that kind of punitive response and how that's not actually uh, like ultimately addressing or repairing damage that's been, that has been done. And I was like, oh, okay. And that was the first time I was like, I'd heard the term abolition outside of history books um, talking about like the abolitionist movement uh, of the mid 1800s, which is where I thought the term started and ended was 1865. Did not know that, you know, it, it's a term that actually exists. It's a framework. Um, so basically abolition is the idea um, that not only should there not be prisons, not be cages, not be that kind of, like, of punitive responses to harm, but ultimately abolition is questioning a society that says prisons are the way uh, to deal with these things. So it's not just about the cages that have to go, how did we construct an entire society that said, this is what you do? So in order for that to happen, that's going to need us to really dismantle many aspects, including CPS, including um, this empire that says that Amazon workers will pay more in taxes than Jeff Bezos does. Like that is also a fundamental part of abolition because again, Thinking of your example earlier, of, of, of you said it was your break tag or something. It was something that had expired. It was something insurance. That, insurance. insurance. Um, that to me is connected in the sense of you don't pay people for their labor and you know you don't pay people for their label, yet you still have all these requirements of what if you have a car, which you have to have a car to get to work. You know, all these things that are needed to exist, but they cost money. But we know what we pay you versus what we could pay you is different. And so you do these things that you have to do in order to live the life that you, you know, have to live. 
And so then wages are low, mandated to be low all across the country. There's intense union busting, like millions of dollars being spent to stop organizers from or like workers from organizing, right? That thing gets used against you. Oh, oh can't afford insurance. I'm in jail. You know what I mean? Um, I and and this is not the the sole experience of why people engage in sex work. I'll say that from the beginning. Maybe one of the reasons why is economic reasons. That's criminalized. You know what I mean? So it's all these things that are happening to me. Why would we start the conversation with where people end up? in prison, in cages, and not start the conversation with what got you there. So to me, abolition is a framework, meaning a belief, meaning way of seeing the world, but it's also an organizing strategy. It's a way of moving campaigns. It's a way of framing work. It's a way of organizing programs in your organization. You know, so it's possible to me, it's possible to do any of the things that we do with an abolitionist lens. It's possible to do work addressing law enforcement violence with an abolitionist lens. And it's also a daily practice. So if I know that I have car insurance that mandates that I call, like, have a police report, if I'm in an accident, to me, an abolitionist daily practice is instead of calling the cops and having them come, going to the station. It's a small act, but I'm not. But that's one less cop that I'm bringing out into a neighborhood, knowing what cops do in those neighborhoods. So it's it's, it's also like a daily way of of um, minimizing interactions with people who often cause harm in communities. So, but that's a an overview. We can have whole conversations. There are books, there are webinars, there are YouTube that you can see. But to me, it's directly re it's related to this conversation in terms of even if that mama living with HIV or, or that mama who is struggling did the harm that you're accusing her of, why do we think that putting her in a cage is going to make things better? I, I don't and not make it worse, which is what happened. Like, let's be clear, like separating families, <laughs> putting mama and kid in a cage, data shows makes it worse. So then my question is, why are you really doing it? Because you said it was about the safety of the child. The child's not safe with mama not in the home. But you were about to say something. No, I'm just going to sit here with my mouth dropped the whole time because it just it feels like that like wow you're you're able to articulate so many things that we often think about you know and don't have the words to get into that's crazy so 
um, Antoinette's comment, she went back and talking about her experience a little bit of she's in the hospital. She's a woman that was born with HIV. So mm-hmm. they told her not to tell any of the nurses in the hospital that she planned on breastfeeding um, because they could potentially cause CPS. Mm-hmm. So now this is a bigger harm, I feel like, because I can't even tell the people that are treating me or providing care for me what my situation is in fear of how you're going to respond. Exactly. I, I don't need your approval. I just need the support. And that is in the realm of your your job is to support me in the decisions that I make, not the decisions you make for me and I'm expected to follow. So, you know, even something, I like the idea of going to the police station versus having them come to you. You know, we don't like to call police anyway, at least where I'm right. from. We don't want no parts of it. So that would be a workaround would be to go down to the station. I had never thought about that. Um, what I've seen or in my own experience now is like, I hate to make this comparison, but like this secret underground um, thing that's happening where we know that we have to work around these different entities Mm -hmm. and structures. So like we're all whispering, you know, down here and passing the person along so Mm -hmm. that they can get there when it shouldn't have to be a secret type thing. Like I I should be able to just go in and, you know, receive the services that I would like to receive and it be that. But, you know, that secrecy and I pass it, I'll get you over to, you know, the correct pediatrician or I'll get you over to the right OBGYN. And so many women do not have access to those resources. I talked about, um, I know we're talking criminalization right now and breastfeeding is just like on the front of my mind. With yes, this. Okay. Um, I'm talking about how I was able to advocate so strongly for myself today that advocacy looks different than what it would have looked like about five years ago. Mm-hmm. Right now, I have the support of, you know, organizations such as the Well Project, you know, which many people see as the face is a white women, you know. So I'm dependent on, you know, these structures behind me that are led by white women to help me as a black woman in poverty, you Speak know, make it to where I'm trying to make it to. And I'm so grateful for that. You know, I'll always big the Well Project up for that because without them, I wouldn't have many of the connections and the voice that I have to back me up. So now when I write a complaint back to the to the clinic that gave me the services that I was not okay with I have some oomph you know in it I got some somebody to back me up I'm not out here by myself and that is what I want so much to get out to the people is that you know especially the women living with HIV is that you are not alone find a support system find like there is more than likely somebody who has been in a situation that is like yours similar or maybe exactly the same please reach out you do not have to go at this alone it can be so intimidating and you might feel like there is no support out there but please 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 reach out they called you a national treasure. You're a national treasure. <laughs> I can't with y'all. Um, but that's how criminalization is meant to work. And it's not my intent to be cynical. I think I can just be very blunt. But like my experience is sometimes part of how oppression works, namely violence and criminalization, is it makes us internalize stuff that was systemic from the get-go. 
you know, and part of how I've seen it play out is exactly what you said, Cece, of um, it isolates you, which literally when you're in a cage, that's what happens. Or when you, um, you know, in Louisiana, if you are criminalized um, under the HIV statute, you have to register as a sex offender. That's a form of isolation because it's so many restrictions literally on where you can live, where you can be, those sort of things. It's somebody in Louisiana, an amazing advocate um, who talks about how as a mom with this sex offender, she can't even drop off her children. You know, in terms of like, you can't be within a certain number of feet of a school, but you have kids, you know what I mean? It's like, it literally works to isolate you from, from your people. Then the system then blames you for that isolation. You know, you have a court date, you're the only one there. See, no one supports. Well, actually, because of HIV stigma, no one wanted to F with me. Then I'm blamed for that. So it becomes this like cyclical, um, you know, process where you internalize things that from the get-go are, are systemic. And also, it's also historic. Like I was, I was reading a comment about like, uh, it's in Black people's DNA not to trust. I mean, like before there were police, there were slave patrols. Why would I trust the person who's literally trying to bring me back to a plantation where I will die? <laughs> You know what I mean? And like that is the basis for law enforcement as it exists in the U.S. And so that then plays out, um, you know, in a contemporary sense of you can say, you know, like I'm sure it's many people who have had varying experiences. Some hopefully are positive with law enforcement. That doesn't change that it is a system that is meant to um, maintain social order at any cost. It is It is not, and I think about this in terms of like safety, and I'm thinking of what Olivia said earlier about protection. That's what we're told. We're told that these HIV laws are about safety, are about protecting, you know, people who are not living with HIV. And we're told it's in the name child protective services. It's told that it's supposed to protect services. And then we're the the wild ones, like when we're sitting up there, like, not only am I not safe, I'm a lot less safe than I was like before this even started. Not only are my children not receiving any protection. They even have less protection than they did before this CPS quote unquote investigation from an anonymous healthcare provider even started. So to me, it's just important to name what's actually happening and to like say it's not true. Like it's not growing safety. Like how much money is funneled into law enforcement every year. Like thinking of what you shared, Cece, about um, your family, you know, and I heard you mention, um, you know, like drugs and just thinking about this war on drugs and all that it's cost us and how we've seen the exponential rise of prisons, of detention centers. We've seen 
law enforcement agencies across the country, big and small, get leftover military equipment. And no one can say that they are more safe because of it. In New Orleans right now, there's a whole campaign around these um, crime cameras. And the idea is like, it's to, to keep safety. You know how many crimes happen right in front of the cameras? So our thing is, well, it didn't prevent the crime and it hasn't solved it. So what are we paying for? You know, like one or the other, okay, it didn't prevent it. You could solve it. You didn't do either. <laughs> so what it's for? And, and it's not just, you know, in that arena, but I find it helpful to ask, is this really about safety and whose safety? Not my people's. We're safe when we look out for each other, not when cops patrol. My people are safe when we have safety plans and check in and make sure that they have food, water, the things that they need for themselves and their family. That's what I know keeps my people safe. We're safe when we advocate and speak up and, and, and say no when necessary and those things, not when this agency gets this increased budget or when CPS makes their routine quote unquote calls to my house. You know, I'm just thinking of the experience in the hospital, you know, in terms of what was needed in that moment. What's the quality of care if you're telling someone, you know, like if someone knows I can't be fully forthright with this medical team because they might call CPS. That's now impacting that person's quality of care. How is that safety? Well, um, and when you talk about safety, I think about how I grew up in a real small, small town in Georgia and how my hands start sweating when I even think to you know, go back there or to leave outside of the city limits here in Philly, my hands sweat. I feel so safe when I hear, you know, the reggae and the Caribbean music playing <laughs> from the cars. Like, I just feel like I'm in a safe space. And how many of my decisions and choices have been based off of the need of needing to feel safe. That's mm. exactly why I still am where I am. Mm -hmm. um, let's see. We usually get input from our cab members to help guide these conversations. You have done so well. Like we're almost at time. So I want to make sure that we cover, you know, at least a few points that were raised. Um, let's see. Are there any cases that helped or hindered women living with HIV? I think you kind of alluded to a case at the beginning. Do you have any experience um, where the woman living with HIV like came out on top? Um, you know, that was a major win for that woman? Well, I actually think in the case that I mentioned is it started off just you know, super horrible in terms of intimate partner violence is horrible, even if it, you know, um, like it, it was bad, like even if it didn't have the additional charge, but it ended up being very beautiful in terms of 
she was somebody who, for all the reasons, didn't talk about her status. You know, and so suddenly, you know, it's something that unfortunately is now known, right? You know, it's something that's out there. And like, and just seeing her make the decision to be like, so I do have HIV and what? Like, it doesn't mean like that what happened to me was justified. And so just like flipping something for her into this thing that's like, and what? The real issue is that I lost my housing voucher and and made a decision to stay with somebody who was violent. And just seeing her just like make those flips and like focus on like what the, like, like, you know, as far as what was happening, I thought was super beautiful. Um, so it, it just was like an outcome. And to this day of this woman is an amazing advocate, you know, is somebody who um, is not only super comfortable with her status, but I've seen her encourage others who are, who are maybe newer, you know, on their journey of living with HIV and being like, look, it's going to look how it looks for you. Like maybe like now is the time to, you know, be out your status. Like maybe that, that won't happen, but it's okay. Cause what works for you is what works. Um, but any cases, um, I mean, it's a lot of, like, it's definitely been times where like someone, you know, it did look like the person was going to, like the case was going to move forward and the charges like were going to move forward. And through some advocacy, you know, having um, prosecutors drop the case, that's always a good thing. Like to me, one less person in a cage is always a reason to celebrate. And one less person in a cage and getting the support that they need is just like a reason to have a parade <laughs> because like ultimately like that's what I, I want to see is our you know people have the support that all of us need um and was the question also some like cases that had more of a positive but was it also like cases that didn't work it said helped or hindered women living with hiv um, definitely some of the ones that hinder, and of course I'm being uh, general on purpose, not to give people's, you know, personal information. Um, some that have hindered, um, just the nature of our criminal legal system, to me, is the biggest hinder. Like one, you know, I'm a defense attorney. It's not that public defenders aren't good attorneys. They are. It's just that it costs to mount a good defense. And our state doesn't fund public defense. So folks don't have the money to mount the defense that's needed. You know, is is like the biggest hindrance. So sometimes maybe like me not being a public defender, being a private attorney, I don't necessarily like hear about a case until like it's pretty far along. And it's, it's a lot harder to like advocate and do that kind of work at a certain stage. So it's not, it's not like a failure of anybody. It's just like our criminal legal system, which really profits literally off of uh, over-policing because it's so many people, you know, incarcerated, uh, you know, it's, it's so many people 
um, in the system that they know and the stakes are so high because housing so scarce, you know, jobs that pay something are so hard that folks are doing what they can to get out and will plea if it means I can get out, hopefully get my job back, you know, be able to pay rent, all of that. And so like that to me, like is the biggest hindrance is the ways that like people, like prosecutors, cops, like know what folks are up against and really use that, you know? And also I've seen like people, not people, prosecutors and cops, maybe specific, use the fact that someone's a mother as a reason to really force them into a really bad plea deal, you know, and, and to pressure them. And what's heartbreaking is sometimes I don't hear about it till after they've pled. And then, which limits options, because again, the law is a limiting tool from the get-go, and it limits options, you know, in terms of, of what to do. But that's something that, um, you know, unfortunately I see. And um, just like the amount of people who are like really pressured into in, into taking certain deals. Um, and like, I've seen judges in open court, like say like, like of people who represented by other attorneys, like, like use, oh, well, she's a mom as a means to like, Basically, like, it's part of why this person, you know, is a criminal, you know, in these really, like, racialized ways. You know, like, I remember, um, you know, she was not living with HIV, but was living with a number um, of mental health challenges, some that were diagnosed um, in the course in uh, of her criminal case, Um she was pregnant and the ways in which like me like i had to really really think and pray and strategize on whether it was going to be helpful to her case to to like make it a part of the defense that she's pregnant because just knowing how black motherhood in particular particularly working class black motherhood is criminalized and I ended up making the right decision and me and her talked about it every step of the way and deciding to like use that as part of the defense for uh, um, a small sentence. And it did work, but just the stress of that kind of gamble is just really hard on me. Yes, but also on the person who, you know, stress isn't good in your life, but especially when you're pregnant, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um and so just like, I'm getting a little emotional thinking about it, but it was just like, like, just like seeing her, like, I just told her, I was like, look, like this could be something that could make it better. And I will do whatever I can to like frame it and defend it in this way. And sometimes here's what could happen. So just those kind of decisions you have to make, um, it's just not fair on folks who are facing BS charges to begin with. You know, and every time you like bring up someone having to go to court or anything, like I just imagine working my hourly paid job where I have to request days off from work mm -hmm. and I'm not getting paid for it. Um, and so now a bill is short, <laughs> which is probably, you know, maybe my rent 
and maybe this is the last time my rent could be late and now I have nowhere to live because of these BS charges that were brought up in the first place. Like I'm not so far removed from that life that I, I feel that down in my bones. Like, But you know whose bills are paid? That judge with our tax dollars offer us to come into court and reset the whole docket. Their bills are paid with our tax dollars. I remember sitting at a red light one day and the person next to me had a cup of Dunkin' Donuts coffee yeah. and how I wanted that cup of coffee so bad, but I didn't have the $2 to get it. Like, I know that life. I know that life of going into work and not being paid enough already. You already tired of them. And now, you know, I have to come with you to a supervisor that I probably don't even trust and let you into that space of my life to let you know what's going on so I could get the time off. And had I not been living with HIV, this probably wouldn't even have to have been a conversation anyway. This, I think it definitely speaks to the different intersectionalities, the different disparities, you know, and this conversation could probably go on all day because criminalization affects everyone. But I definitely think that it's something to be talked about how it affects black women who are living with HIV. Um, oh God, it just, you know, and for the situations that we know about, the circumstances that have come across us both, there has to be a million more. I, I hope it's not a million more, but many, many more yeah. that we don't know about. And that is what is the scary part to me, is that we, it's probably a lot worse. Whew. Okay, this is the um, last question. I think we have no time for it. So has you equals you impacted any of the work that you are doing now that we can say undetectable equals untransmittable? Um, I, yes and no. Um, it, it's impacted it in the sense that I'm excited like that more people are talking about you equals you. And I know, I'm sure this is true other places, like everywhere, but in Louisiana, it's been some really cute, like YouTube videos, like cartoons, um, like in super accessible ways, like talking about like you equals you. That's not, you know, a 20 page scientific graph, you know, that makes me fall asleep. And I'm used to rather dense material. So I appreciate that. Like, I appreciate anything that isn't assuming a certain education level for folks to understand. Um, I also... Yeah, so to me, it's something that's great because contrary to popular belief, lawyers um, are like, all I can say is the amount of times like that I've had to educate other lawyers and judges on the means of transmission for HIV, you know, it just goes to show like that education is not the same thing as formal education. You can have a lot of formal education and not have any sense telling you just so you have to go to a law conference you'll be like i could do this i'm like yes you can run all of it that's not a doubt um so that's good but i mean i'm excited about that what's challenging is i experience some people use 
um, U equals U to be like, oh, so we're done. You know, like, oh, okay, well, good. You know, kind of on to the next issue. And I take issue with that for a number of reasons. I know we don't have a lot of time, so I will say we cannot construct a movement that leaves some of our people behind. Like, I think it is amazing if people are undetectable and the basis for support should not be one's viral status. Because there are some people who will never be undetectable, even if they do the quote unquote right things. Take their medication every day. And I hate that word compliant. Case in point, what do cops say when they kill somebody? He wasn't compliant. Yeah, that's a word that we use to talk about medication. That's weird. Side note, you know, so like uh, for me, that's just something that sticks out of like, it's important. It's a great tool. And I've seen it in, in the decrim world, sometimes it be used of like, okay, well, this is the basis for modernizing statues. I hope not, because that's going to leave behind people. And my understanding often of who is undetectable is it does fall often on racial, gender, and class lines. So as a Black queer woman, I'm not about to support a policy that's leaving behind my people. We're not doing that because we've seen that. We've seen what happens when like when policies are constructed that only appeal to lesbians and gays and leave behind trans folks. So that's that's like is my thoughts is like it's good. But then in, in many ways, I find it sometimes honestly makes things a little harder. Of just keeping it 100, because now folks that were like, oh, well, we're done. It's like, no, we're kind of just getting started still, actually. Um, so yeah, just um, that's that. And then I was talking about this as somebody who has used U equals U as a defense strategy in an individual case, just as a progressive lawyer, whatever you want to call me, it's not a and a fundamentally as an organizer, it's not useful, it's not strategic to use an individual strategy as broad brush public policy. Because it assumes that that experience is a universal one when it's not. And as part of how we get in this situation is we then make everyone's experience of HIV just one person's when it's like literally, you know, where they say everyone has like, like snowflakes are all different. I don't know. I'm not for a place with snow. Maybe it was a bad example, but that's what I read. <laughs> Doesn't snow here, but that's kind of how it is as well. It's like everyone's experience is different. So we can't have these like very, very narrow things used. But to, to me, like that's not really a problem with you equals you as much as how people are using, are deciding to interpret you equals you. But yeah, so it's I'm excited about it, but I also sometimes find it does make work a little harder. Just honest. 
Oh, we appreciate you. Honesty, you're keeping it 100. This has definitely been a phenomenal conversation. Like, you could tell with, you know, the comments and everything. So, yes, popping. The chat's popping. Y'all doing it. Yes, thank you. And one more time before we get off, I am going to... um display our survey link here if you all could please be so kind to complete this little short survey um so that we can get some feedback on how we're doing here um and make sure that we're still meeting the needs of our audience um i was so gratefully appreciate it thank you again for attending our 18th episode of a girl like me live please join us again in may um, where we'll be holding another session. We look forward to seeing you all there. And once again, thank you so much. I hope you all have a good day.